This mini lecture is called Momentum Part 1. Momentum is movement, and we're going to be talking about how you keep lessons and how you keep instruction in your classroom moving forward, and that's momentum. Okay. Now, the rule is um, momentum is movement, so when you get it going, keep going. Now, how you do that, we're going to talk about uh, how you keep that role going. Momentum, when you're on a roll, keep going. You got that instruction rolling, keep it going. How do you keep it going? Alright, first of all, you need to set a brisk pace that keeps learning going in a classroom. Move it along. One of the analogies I give students is when you go in a classroom and you're watching the instruction move, it should be like the teacher has her back placed firm, her hand placed firmly on the back of each student and just this firm pressure forward. She's not shoving them, but she's also not holding them back or letting them lag behind. So you want that brisk pace. You want to prod students to keep moving. Come on, yeah, okay, yes, all right. But you don't want to do so much prodding and pushing that you make them feel frustrated or frantic. Just that steady, come on, get going, get going, get going, okay? Those of you who have your own children may know something as simple as trying to get them dressed and in the car in enough time to get to wherever you're going on time, church, school, whatever. All right, we're prodding, we're pushing, we're getting kids moving forward in an instructional sequence. Don't stop or slow down when you've got things going. The lesson is going well, keep it moving. Okay, don't stop. Um, it helps to have instructional sequences with a clear beginning and ending and logical follow-through. When you start an instructional segment, students should be able to tell. And you think, well, now how might that go wrong? Surely when you start instruction, students can't, you know, students can tell. You'd be surprised what you can see in classrooms. For example, a teacher tells students, get out your spelling book and turn to page 34, and then she turns around and starts doing something. She's uh, taping some kind of little piece of paper or sign or something up on the wall. Well, has class started or not? Students don't know. She tells them to do something, but then she takes her attention away from them. Or she says, get out your books and turn to page 34 while everybody's still talking. Five people here or five students here and start doing that and the rest of them don't. Has this instructional sequence started or not? Um, I have observed a college teacher, no longer at ETSU, who would walk in the door. He was always a little late and students would be talking in, in one of these medium-sized auditoriums. He'd walk in the door, wander up kind of close to the front, and just start talking. And students would continue talking on and on and on and on, not because they were being uh, rude or deliberately ignoring him. They just didn't realize class had started. 
By the time everybody got settled down and quiet, he was, you know, five, ten minutes down the road. Okay? Kids need to know when instructional sequences begin. You can tell them, I'm going to start class now. It's a clue. And when you say, I'm going to start class now, go ahead and start it one time. Don't start, stop, do something else and come back. I'm going to start class, start it. Our spelling lesson has started. I am starting math now. Start class, okay? Clear ending. Um, the ends of instructional segments tend to come unraveled. And you can watch, if, you're not, if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch your own college classes, traditional college classes. The end of the instructional segment tends to come unfocused. Students start packing up the material, rustling, rustling around, uh, the teacher, na 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 Design instructional sequences and class sequences that have a clear ending. We are now finished with spelling. We are going to put our spelling materials up, and we are going to get out our math book and our math homework. End of this, start of this. So instructional sequences with clear endings. Logical follow-through means a series of instructional activities that are logically related. I men mentioned one in the uh, mini-lecture on efficient help. The student-teacher taught a concept by having students work through three problems, and then he had them work some on their own. The logical follow-through to that might be um, what you don't finish, you take home, finish for homework, and bring the whole thing back tomorrow. Or if there's plenty of time, you finish those problems, then we go over them as a class, one at a time, and we talk through them, and we see who's got a wrong answer, who's got the right answer. Okay, if you got... You know, if you got 14 instead of 7, what'd you do wrong? And you use going over the problems or, or exercises as a teaching. That's what I'm talking about. Students read something, then they have to do something with it. Answer questions, uh, write a little short paper, um, quiz each other on the uh, reading or use it as a basis for some kind of language activity, some kind of logical follow-through. We do this, then it makes sense to do this, and then it makes sense to do this. Activities that have a beginning, have an end, and a logical sequence and follow-through. Really helps keep your instruction going. Try not to interrupt students who are on task. Um, the jokingly what I tell my students, except it's not much of a joke, is if you got, a got them all quiet and working, thank God and leave them alone, okay? Don't interrupt students who are working, who are on task. Let them keep on going as long as the instructional activity seems to be moving forward, let it go. Don't interrupt students who are actually working and learning. If you have to interrupt students, make a complete stop and a complete start. An example, you forgot to take lunch count. 
And by the way, you ought to have a better way than this of taking lunch count. But you forgot to take the stupid lunch count, and you've got your, your uh, class started on something. Okay, make a complete stop. Say, okay, everybody, excuse me, stop, pay attention to me. Okay, all right, get everybody's attention. Put your pencil down and listen to me. How many of you are, and you count, all right, how many of you are, you can't write it down, thank you very much, now go back to your activity. Complete start, do what you got to do, complete start, okay, and try not to do that. Now here is the first example, interrupting students engaged in seat work to take a lunch count. That is a teacher error, and it's called a thrust. You got students actively engaged in seat work, you interrupt them, you thrust them to the middle of that activity to do something irrelevant. You felt you had to do it, or maybe practically speaking, you did have to do it, but it's a teacher error. And by the way, uh, you will make this teacher error. It's impossible not to do this once in a while, but you try to minimize it. No thrusts. Here's another one interrupting instruction on a science lab procedure to give content you forgot to give earlier. This is a teacher error called a flip-flop. Again, you will do this. I do it every now and then. You simply didn't get things in the right order. You stopped something and then had to back up and do something else. In fact, I may have done that in one of the earlier uh, mini lectures. You just sort of got your content or your activities out of order. You gave out this lab exercise, and you forgot that before they could do it, you had to teach them this little technique or this little piece of information. So you have to stop them, and you have to give this information, and then start them again. Again, the principle is when you got to stop, make a full stop, complete stop, get everybody's attention, get everybody started. St I mean, everybody stopped back up, do whatever it is, give the content you forgot to give, and then give them a complete start on the activity. Okay? No thrusts, no flip-flops. More examples. A uh, teacher is lecturing on the use of the comma. She stops and points out that the cute dog crossing the school grounds is similar to her own dog. Okay? Completely irrelevant, and it takes everybody's attention off the instructional content and the kids all look out the window and completely minds elsewhere seeing the cute little dog. You interrupted your own instruction for something that's irrelevant. Now sometimes you do have to interrupt instruction because it's impossible not to. You're teaching along and this cute little fluffy dog walks in your room, goes to the front of the classroom and lies down. Well, you can't keep on teaching, uh, or it's a hot day and the wind is open, and this family of ducks decides to walk past the room. Whack, 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 whack. Well, all you can do is control the rush to the window, okay? And depending on the age of your students, maybe try to do something about, oh, weren't we talking earlier about families and ducks and what do we call a baby duck or duckling, okay? Um, don't interrupt your own instruction with irrelevant stuff. Um, just keep it going. 
All right, more examples. Teacher supervising a test interrupts students in mid-test and, mid and has them pass in their homework. Well, let's see. Um, you need to take up homework, and you forgot to take it up before class, before you started the test, which is what you should have done. And you know the test is going to go until just about the bell rings. And um, what you should have is a dismissal procedure, but you don't, you're not a really good teacher, so you don't have a dismissal procedure. They just bolt out of the room, and they'll leave without giving you their homework. What could you do? Maybe what you need to do is something less intrusive. Maybe you need to go to the chalkboard or the uh, marker board and write, as you turn in your test and leave the room, remember to give me your homework. Maybe that's what you do. Um, maybe you move the place to turn in the test to a table close to the door, and you put up a little tent thing real quickly that says, leave your homework here. Maybe, you know, who knows what will work in your setting, but maybe instead of interrupting students to take the test, you could do something much less intrusive and get the homework you forgot to ask for. Uh, teacher monitoring seat work interrupts student to compliment his new shirt. Well, maybe she thinks she's being a nice person and developing rapport with this student, and he's sometimes a little bit difficult, so she's going to just admire his shirt. But what she's done is interrupt him and possibly some other students around him and gotten them completely off from the activity they're supposed to be engaged in. Again, when you have students actively engaged in a learning activity, try not to interrupt them. A teacher starts a social studies lesson, realizes she forgot to tell the class they're spelling homework, and so stops the class to give them the assignment. This is another example of a flip-flop. In this case, you don't have to do it. You didn't forget some kind of essential content for this activity. You forgot some, uh, a piece of instructions. Again, what you can do is move this to the end of social studies. You go ahead and finish your social studies lesson. When you get to the end of it, you say, and one more thing, earlier today, I forgot to give you your spelling homework. I have written it on the board or whatever, and here's what it is. Move that to the end of the social studies lesson. It's still out of order, but better it should be there than in the middle of your social studies lesson. Teach the students from the first day to prepare for class and start class promptly. This is really important. Um, you can go in classrooms, including college classrooms. It's 10 minutes into the instructional period, and we haven't really started class yet. You can go in many P12 classrooms, and it's 5, 10, 15 minutes into the class and we haven't started instruction. A couple things happen when teachers don't put into place a good, quick, fast starting routine. Number one, 
the time gets longer and longer. If you don't work from the beginning to get your class started and rolling just as soon as possible after what in most schools is a bell, now some schools don't have bell, bells, but you, if you don't get your class rolling fast, the time elapsed, the goofing off time, wasting time, getting class started time gets longer and longer as the year goes on. During that longer and longer time, some things happen. One is you lose precious instructional time. If there is any extra time in the class period, let it be just a tiny bit at the end of class, and by tiny I mean one minute. Not five minutes, not ten minutes, just a tiny bit at the end of class. And we'll talk in a later lecture about how to fill the you know times that, that just don't work out right. Okay, so you want your class starting early, you waste instructional time, and behavior gets worse and worse. If you get your class rolling well quickly, your behavior throughout the whole class period will be better and your instruction will be better. If you get off to a ragged start, behavior will be worse, learning will be worse. So you want the class start with a sense of energy promptly, that fast pace. One way, a couple of things you should do is one, teach students really early the expectations for preparation. Uh, I'm very old-fashioned and I think that the main way you prepare for class is by putting your seat in the seat. Um, I encourage teachers, particularly beginning teachers, to simply teach from day one the expectation that when you come in my room, you go straight to your seat and you sit down. You don't roam around the class. You don't visit. You don't go see your buddies. And most especially, you don't jump, run, thump, bounce, poke, beep, bop, boop, whatever. Go to your seat, sit down. You can, if it fits your situation and your style, include some things like you can sharpen your pencil and sit down, whatever, but you get a real clear expectation. You come in the room, you come in my classroom, you sit down and you get ready to learn. Um, also, it helps to teach from day one what ready to learn means once you're seated. It could be you must have your book, something to write with, notebook or paper and pencil, whatever. You must be completely ready to learn. You should have your homework out or whatever. So teach expectations for preparation, number one, and consider using settling activities. Some people call these bell activities or bell work but they're things you assign students to do at the beginning, uh, before the class starts, to A, keep them busy, B, teach them something, and C, quite often get them ready for your instructional activity. Now, examples of settling activities. These are educational activities students know they should do every day when they enter the class until the teacher is ready to begin teaching. Some examples. Write in your journal, topics on the board. 
Now I'm going to teach that on the first day of, of class or maybe the second day of class. In my English class, we keep a journal. Every day when you come in, you need to go straight to your uh, seat, look on the board right here. This place is where I put your journal topic for the day, okay? Write in your journal on that topic. Then when you start class, the bell rings, you start class. Not every day, but many days, you will build on that journal topic. You will discuss it. You will maybe have a few students read what they wrote, um, whatever is appropriate. Uh, from time to time, you will have students select a journal topic and develop it more thoroughly into a uh, two-page paper, whatever. But in this class, you come in, you sit down, you get out in your journal. And by the way, you've got to have your journal every day. You write in it, which means you've got to have a pencil or ink pen every day. And you're ready to start class. Go to the Assigned Learning Center and read the instructions. This would be for an open classroom, a lot of learning centers. Uh, but how do you get students in and actively engaged? Well, when you come in this class, you check this uh, board right here, this chart right here. It has your name on it and the number of your Assigned Learning Center today. You look up your name, it says Center 3. And we know that Center 3 is right there. You go right there, you take a seat, and you start reading the instructions and preparing to participate in this center's activity today. That's what you do. Come in, go to a center. Silent reading. Again, many teachers require students to always have a library book. Many teachers keep a classroom library. Uh, many teachers uh, help students buy books. You can assign material in your textbook, particularly if you're reading, if you're working with students who will not read outside of class, or you're in the um, woefully, regrettably, too common school where you don't have enough books to actually let your students carry them home you can assign silent reading as the, as the settling activity. You come in, you get a book, or you get a book, you come in, you get a book, you sit down, and you start reading, and it's on the board. Check the pages. Instructions are on the board every day, or there's some sort of standard procedure. Te other things teachers use, a couple of math problems. If the school really is trying to uh, improve their TCAPS math scores, well, uh, for settling activities, not just in math class, assign a couple of little math problems. Or uh, use brain teasers or uh, some sort of little quick language game where students can write the answer. Uh, you know, fabulous questions from yesterday's reading, you know, answer these questions really quickly. Whatever gets students in, settled down, and focused on learning. The next topic is transitions. A transition is moving from one activity to another. For many classrooms, you can stand outside the classroom and you can simply listen and you can tell when a transition happens. And experienced teachers will tell you that's because the volume of the noise from the room goes way up. 
somehow when students disconnect from activity A and start to get ready for B, they start talking a lot. You really don't have to have that happen. You can, from day one, establish the fact that when we disengage in activity A and move to activity B, there shouldn't be any talking. No reason to talk, no talking. And you can run the two activities together without that. The correct way to have a transition is easier to describe than it is to do, but it is very simply that you must make a full stop on activity A and a full start on activity B. If you see transitions going wrong, it is typically because you did not get that full stop, full start. For example, you don't get activity A clearly started, clearly stopped. Some st students are paying attention to you and they hear you say to stop. Others are so engrossed in the work or in this behavior that they don't hear you or they simply don't disengage and comply. And so part of your students stop, part don't. Well then, when you start activity B, pretty obviously some students get it started and some are still in activity A. Plus there's some who stopped A and didn't start B. So transitions need to be arranged so that you have a full stop on activity A, full stop on B, and you need to plan and work to have those full stops with very little time in between. You want full stop, full start, and a smooth moving from one activity to another. Routinize your common transitions. It may be that on a regular basis you're going to start your class sessions with this activity and then move to this. Well that's a common transition. Routinize it. Other things that go in with your transitions that you need to routinize are things like putting up and getting out materials. How can you get those really smooth? Or if a certain activity always has to have a certain material uh, distributed, what kind of procedures can you work out to get that, those materials distributed as quickly as possible? Or maybe pre-distributed and already there? So that your transition to the next activity is very simple, the materials are already there, okay? So routinize those common transitions. All activities need to have a clear closure with no topic or activity left dangling. If you commit that teacher error, it is called a dangle. Okay? Every activity has to have closure. If something is not working, don't just abandon it. You have to stop and close out the activity, even if the closure is an explanation. Amazing what teachers will do sometimes. They will start an activity, and for some reason they don't get the lesson up and running. They don't get the routine implemented. It's not working. Something's going wrong. And they just sort of abandon it and start doing something else. 
very confusing to students and you often don't get a good transition because some students are still thinking we're doing activity A but we've moved to activity B. You got a signal, you got a close. Here's an example. I can tell from your answers that I need to reteach this. You started a lesson and it's pretty obvious to you that they didn't get what you taught yesterday and you've got to have that understanding before you can do this lesson. So what you say is, please, you got to close, right? Here's your closure. I can tell that we're going, you know, I'm going to have to reteach this. You're not, you're not doing these exercises right. So here's my closure. Please pass up these handouts. Get out your book and open it to page 43. Presumably, that's the page in the book where uh, there's the material that you need to reteach. So your closure is, we're going to stop this, pass up these materials, get out your book, I'm going to reteach. Okay, so then you start reteaching. If an activity is going to run longer than anticipated, you still have to have closure. You don't just get to the end of your instructional time, take a breath, and quit. You have to have some closure. Um, once upon a time, a student wrote, wrote on my evaluation, my student assessment of instruction, that I needed to design instructional lessons that fit within uh, a 55-minute college class period. I've been teaching since the earth cooled, and I don't know how to do that. It, it is virtually impossible to design a lesson and know exactly how long it's going to take. You can teach the same lesson on the same day to six different classes of students in the same grade, and the lesson will take different amounts of time for different groups of students. You can teach a lesson year after year and you never will get a handle entirely on how long it's going to take. Sometimes it goes real fast and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it's hard to say why. So you need to be prepared mentally and in terms of your planning how to end activities that are going to last longer than you planned. Now I mentioned one common uh, thing teachers do which is near the end of an instructional period where there's going to be some sort of break. Uh, you go to lunch or uh, in a departmental situation, the bell rings and they go to another class. Assign work, uh, typically independent seat work, near the end of class that will go to that period and then students do the rest for homework. Uh, very common in, let's say, a math class it fills that time. Uh, students are glad to have the time to work on what potentially is going to be their homework, and it takes care of the expandable time. Um, you may have students who, for example, finish quickly, and then, of course, you've got your filler activity, and that gives even the slowest student some opportunity to get some of this work done with supervision and feedback from you before going home and doing the rest as homework, okay? So if the activity is going to run longer than anticipated, you have to close it off.
Continuing activities from one day to the next is just fine. There is no need, uh, whoever that student was, there is no need to design activities that fit or lessons that fit within one class period. In fact, it is very common for teachers to design certain activities that go across Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, for example, Monday may be uh, when we get our spelling words for the week. Tuesday may be when we do some dictionary work and look up the definitions. Uh, Wednesday may be when we uh, write sentences, you know, little bit tiny bits of time here, write sentences. Thursday may be when we uh, study the spelling and the definitions and take a little practice quiz. If you do well, then you don't have to take the real quiz, which is on Friday. So that kind of activity where you have an activity and you just sort of take it across multiple days. Perfectly fine to start talking about the ancient Sumerians on Monday, not finish, go on to Tuesday. It, you know, it works. Now on Tuesday you may want to start with a little bit of review, but you just pick up and keep on going. Here's the example. We're going to stop here today. Notice this is closure. And even the student who's mentally in Pittsburgh hears you say, we're going to stop here for today, and we're going to finish this on Monday. Please put these materials up, and remember to bring them to class on Monday. Monday, Monday, bring your materials. Now you're shifting to the next activity. Get out your journals and find an entry you would like to share. Maybe review. On Monday, you probably need to review. Examples. Beginning teachers and ineffective experienced teachers sometimes design instructional sequences that leave students dangling without a natural follow-through for learning, application, and practice. There's some examples. All right. You assign students silent reading for all or most of a period. Frequently, there is no discussion or questioning from the teacher, no exercises in analysis and interpretation, no linkage to terms and concepts, and so forth. The teacher just has them read. So you ask, why does she do that? Because they're quiet. Now, at this point, I'm going to start, stop part two of Momentum, and we will take this topic up. Notice, see, see the closure here? And we will take this top up, topic up again in part two of Momentum. I went a little too far. <laughs>